You are listening to Black Cloud Society. I've been on a long road With the devil right beside me Rising with the morning sun It's a hunger that drives me Oh Lord, send my soul Take my pain and turn it into gold Cause all I know Hey guys, it is good to be back with you for yet another episode of Black Cloud Society, your favorite podcast. Well, at least my favorite podcast, but I might be slightly biased. But nonetheless, I'm still excited to be back in front of the mic this month for another installment. I got some exciting news to share with you guys, and that is we have finally surpassed the 1,000 download marker. And while we're not quite spreading as fast as the COVID, we have now officially spread across six countries. And that is wholeheartedly in thanks to listeners like you who continue sharing our content and your favorite episodes and and spreading the word that we exist. And I remain hopeful that for the life of this show, that I will continue to have your support and that you will continue to share your favorite episodes across all the various social media platforms, uh, regardless of whether you like the content or don't like the content, because quite frankly, that's what makes a good show. Stuff that people agree with, stuff that people find controversial. Regardless, I'm going to continue to put the material out there, because quite frankly, it's 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 my show. And because it's my show, I can say pretty much whatever I want. But nonetheless, I appreciate you tuning in. And that brings us right into what's going to be covered in this week's content. This originally was not the episode that I quite had planned to release this time. However, uh, based off some listener requests and listener feedback, I had a couple uh, requests to put forth an episode COVID-related. Now, I know most of you probably COVIDed. Is that even a word? COVIDed? Had too much to do with the COVID virus at this point. However, I thought it would be fitting given the current times and the fact that I have some rather strong opinions on COVID-19. So I hope that you'll continue to listen in this week as we discuss the chaos of the COVID. All right, again, guys, like I said before, I was not initially preparing for a COVID-related episode, given the fact that all of us are on COVID overload right now, especially those of the quote-unquote essential employees who are, you know, on the front lines battling this thing every day. But that being said, when I was asked to provide 
in informational episode on the COVID. I originally denied it and had no interest in doing a COVID-related episode. However, upon, you know, really putting some thought into it and really reflecting on it, reflecting on my experiences in this particular time frame, this particular space with these patients, uh, I realized that, you know what, I actually have some pretty solid and rather <laughs> strong opinions regarding the whole COVID situation. Opinions as far as the virus itself goes, opinions as far as various patient treatment modalities go, given some personal experience, opinions in regards to essential employee status, and opinions regarding the current state of the union as a result of the virus. With that being said, I'll get right into my my, my first point, and that is on the virus in and of itself. Get into what we know about it, what we don't know about it, and what we can expect in the very near future regarding it. Now, because I do have a very vast demographic of listener base, I'm not going to get super, super deep into the uh, pathophysiological aspect of the COVID. Uh, I will touch a little bit on that, but we're not going to go super, super deep. So if you want something a little more deep in that realm, then find a different show to listen to to get that information from. But we're going to touch the bare bones matter of fact type information regarding this process. And now one thing that we do know is that there's still conflicting evidence, conflicting reports as to whether or not the virus is airborne or whether it is droplet. But regardless of however it's transmitted, one thing we do know is that when it does enter your body, it binds to the ACE2 receptors, uh, which reside in your lungs, reside in your GI tract, and reside in your renal or the kidney area. And when it enters your body, it creates a drastic inflammatory response. Now, one thing to take into effect is that you need to remember that only 20% of the people who are infected will actually suffer some type of critical illness that requires hospitalization in an ICU. And the other thing to remember is that an even fewer or lesser percentage, I should say, uh, end up going on ventilators. But once it progresses to the point of requiring ventilation, a very minute percentage of those patients actually end up coming off of the vent. And that's because uh, ventilating these patients is ridiculously tough. Uh, from everything I've read, everything I've seen, everything I have experienced thus far, once they are ventilated, there's generally a poor prognosis. However, 80% of the population that has contracted this virus is unfazed and asymptomatic. So keep that in mind. However, uh, in regards to the virus in and of itself, we do know that it has already mutated into multiple strands of the virus, which is why we're seeing a vast array of varying clinical presentations, some with the GI symptoms, some with the straight respiratory symptoms resulting in the bilateral pneumonia, uh, others that look just like the plain old normal, you know, cold and flu type stuff with minimal symptoms. But, but there's a variety of clinical presentations based off the fact that this disease replicates and mutates rather, rather quickly. As a matter of fact, there are over 700 currently registered studies still pending peer review uh, as far as looking at the variety of evidence that's been produced thus far to date. Now, in taking some time to examine some of the evidence produced in the more critical patient presentations that I've 
learned about, read about, even experienced personally, is that the most critical of patients are presenting with lung abnormalities that present a lot like ARDS, that present a lot like SARS, that present a lot like MERS. We're seeing patients presenting in varying degrees of sepsis. Uh, we're seeing patients that are presenting with things called cytokine storms for my non-medical people out there. That's basically when the body's inflammatory response to the virus basically triggers a cascade of intracellular suicide. Really, the cells decide to kill themselves to avoid spreading the virus. However, uh, it's kind of on a widespread, super exaggerated response, if you will, so that multiple cells start killing themselves off in a very short time, leading to multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. So while your body's organs are shutting down because your body's essentially killing itself, in an attempt to rid itself of the virus. Now keep in mind this is going on simultaneously with the rest of the body that is also starving for oxygen because as the virus as is impacting those ACE2 receptors in the lungs, it impedes the body's ability to exchange gases, to exchange oxygen with carbon dioxide at the cellular level. And that's kind of why it's so difficult to ventilate these patients is because regardless of the amount of oxygen you're dumping into them, the virus impacts the red blood cell's ability to transport the oxygen. So you can dump as much oxygen as you want into this, these patients' lungs. It's not going to get to where it needs to be in the body's organ system, subsequently causing even more cellular death. Now, in regards to the prediction of mortality or the prognosis of the sickest of the sickest patients, unlike the CDC and all the other government entities that have gave forth these ridiculous projections that have not only not come to fruition, but will not come to fruition. In hospital with these critical patients, it is possible to essentially predict the prognosis of the patient, and that is uh, made as evident by something called the ZOO, Z-H-O-U trial, and that found that there was a commonality among patients that had expired, and that was in the presence of not only a positively elevated D-dimer level, but a gradually increasing dimer level. As opposed to those that had survived to discharge, they had a more steady D-dimer level for the duration of their hospitalization. Now, obviously, those of us in the field don't have the ability to assess or even draw a D-dimer level to know what the potential prognosis of that patient is. We have to treat these patients based off of what we're seeing right then and there in front of us. And even that has some uh, conflicting information depending on the sources you read. Uh, when it comes down to it, you got to do what's best for the patient in that moment. It seemed like for a while there, every other day, there was a new directive, a new protocol, a new policy, something along those lines coming out with regards to the treatment algorithm as far as how these patients were presenting. And it would literally seem a lot. I remember at one point we were getting, I believe we got three different directives in the same day. We'd no sooner implement one and rearrange, you know, the, the cabin one way and then have to rearrange it another way and then a third way just strictly because another, another guideline would come out based off the information that changed just within that day. So it's a rapidly changing environment with rapidly changing guidelines, which rapidly causes confusion 
amongst the frontline staff that are supposed to be caring for these patients. But I'll tell you right now, we're not the only ones confused in regards to this whole situation because the government can't even keep their guidelines straight as far as what's good one day versus what's good another. And they wonder why the public's all screwed up. But I'll get into that a little later. Right now, I want to cover uh, the aspects of what we can do as frontline providers to better our care for these patients. And I'll tell you right now, so far, the best resource I have found, you know, above and beyond the state guidelines and the protocol changes that have come out by far and wide so far, the best resource I've come across is the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I recommend going to their website to, and they, I mean, they break it down on a step-by-step basis as far as patient presents this way. This is what we recommend. This is what we don't recommend. This is what there's strong evidence to support. Uh, little evidence to support, no evidence to support, which means it's like anecdotal, it's worked, but that we don't really know why it works type situation. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign by far and wide so far has been the most valuable resource that I have used customizing the way in which I care for my patients with these various presentations. And because you have the ability to look up the Surviving Sepsis Campaign on your own time, I will take this particular opportunity to just go into a couple of the more common aspects of patient care that you may be getting conflicting information from. And one of those is the use of positive pressure ventilation uh, as opposed to mechanical ventilation. And I know there was some guidance that came out from a couple of different resources that said to avoid things like CPAP, BiPAP, due to the fact that it has the ability to aerosolize the virus and make potential for exposure even more. However, that being said, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign provides some pretty uh, convincing evidence that kind of states the contrary. They make a recommendation that in your respiratory compromised patients that you actually give a small trial of a high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP or CPAP for a little while to see if it will indeed turn these patients around because what they need is a little bit of that positive pressure to open up those alveolar sacs to improve potential gas exchange. Now, in the event you decide to trial a high-flow nasal cannula, uh, obviously be aware of the fact that it is technically considered a quote-unquote aerosolizing procedure. You should probably apply the cannula and then put a surgical mask over the patient to minimize the aerosolization. There we go. I need to learn how to talk today aerosolization of the virus and obviously therefore minimize your risk of unnecessary exposure. Now for those patients that may require some bronchodilation, the surviving sepsis campaign obviously for the same reasons of that aerosolization, I have trouble with that word, man. Aerosolization, good God. The potential for aerosolization of the virus given nebulized albuterol treatment. So they recommend going old school tributylene or even giving them the anaphylaxis dose of epi uh, to see if that will curtail some of the need for bronchodilation. Now, the large majority of these patients on these trials will do pretty well. And they'll, turn, they'll turn around and they'll start to look like they're getting better. And they may even get better and you might be able to wean them off of the CPAP or the BiPAP back down to the nasal cannula, back down to, you know, Romer at some point. Most likely not within the short term, few moments that we have them in the back of the ambulance or something like that. Uh, 
but that being said, there is a very small percentage of patients that are going to decompensate. They're going to decline rapidly in their mental status and their respiratory status. They're just going to get tired and they're going to require a more invasive ventilatory strategy. Now, bear in mind when you choose to go that route, whether that be strictly just assisting ventilations with a BBM or going the intubation route, transitioning into mechanical ventilation, bear in mind that the safest way to accomplish that while minimizing the risk of that aerosolization risk is with the installation and use of the antibacterial antiviral HME filter. And that filter will serve to minimize the risk pretty much of, of any procedures having to do with advanced airway management. So the order of operations goes with the BLS airway. You want mask, filter, BBM. With the more invasive route of intubation with transition into mechanical ventilation, you want obviously the ET tube, ideally some form of inline suction like the Ballard, though Ballard isn't sponsoring me. That's just what I have experience with in using. End title, HME filter, and then your tubing. Now, whether you put the end title before the filter or end title after the filter, in my opinion, my personal opinion doesn't really matter because the end title CO2 detectors that we have for the monitors, uh, all of them have HME filters built into the tubing itself so that your monitor is not going to magically be harboring virus that gets sucked in through the tube. So the tubing has its own HME filter. So in my opinion, it does not matter whether the end title comes before or after the filter, just as long as the filter is close to the patient circuit before the exhalation port. Now, for the sake of us all, because I'm having trouble with the word aerosolization today. Wow, I said it. Aerosolization. Hey, cool. There we go. Regardless, I'm going to get out of the respiratory care aspect because I don't like the word aerosolization anymore. We're going to get into patients that are presenting with that hypotensive crisis. So as the virus progresses in the most critical of the critical patients, not only are they have the inability to properly oxygenate themselves, but they also lack the ability to properly perfuse themselves and suffer from gradually declining dangerously low blood pressure. Now, typically when we manage a hypotensive emergency in a septic patient, we fluid resuscitate them with 30 mLs per kilo of normal saline or lactator ringers. There's conflicting evidence as far as which one is better. I have my opinions, but that's for a a different episode. Uh, That being said, the Surviving Septus Campaign has some further convincing evidence that states that these more critical COVID patients though they're presenting much like your typical sepsis patient with the cytokine storm, with DIC, with all the other things that accompany end-stage sepsis, that fluid resuscitating these individuals is actually detrimental because they're not dry like your typical sepsis patient is. They're not profoundly dehydrated. So we're actually being detrimental in our patient care by providing uh, crazy amounts of fluid with these COVID patients, thinking that we're treating them just like we are our septic patients. Ordinarily, it's it's give them crazy fluids first, then 
and proceed to vasoactive agents. But with your critical COVID patients, they're leaning away from the drastic fluid resuscitation requirements and moving more towards into jumping into pressors early on as opposed to attempting the fluids first. And with that, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign states that Levofed is your first-line presser of choice over what some services are using dopamine for. Now, dopamine does have its place. It's just not my favorite drug to use ever, nor is it recommended in the treatment of the low blood pressure accompanied with the COVID patients. As a matter of fact, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign states that dopamine in COVID has a tendency to produce cardiac dysrhythmias associated with the administration of dopamine. So if at all possible, stay away from dopamine. You know, and that kind of brings me to another point, which is going to kind of go off topic and switch gears from the clinical side of things. But this just came to my mind in talking about things to avoid in order to benefit the COVID population, and actually to benefit the rest of the country as well. One of the main things you can avoid that will 100% make a difference during this time is to lose the attitude that accompanies that I'm a hero because I'm essential mentality. I cannot tell you the amount of my colleagues, both close and mutual colleagues who absolutely make me sick because they have this air about them, this mentality that, oh, I'm essential, so I'm a hero. You should thank me for my service. None of us signed up for this, so we're going above and beyond our call of duty, so we should get discounts and free food and free this and free that, and you should worship the ground I walk on. Newsflash, if you're a healthcare worker, you did sign up for this. You didn't sign up for, you know, to get to pick and choose what call you wanted to run. You didn't sign up to get to pick and choose which public health crisis you want to work in. Uh, You signed up for the same reason I did, and that is to make a difference. As a matter of fact, if you signed up for a different reason, then to make a difference in somebody's life, then do us all a favor and get out of the industry so that the professionals can actually do what we came here to do, and that is to shut up and do our jobs without the rest of you making an even worse name for us than you already have. You know, it really drives me absolutely up a wall, like crazy up a wall, and it's flooding all aspects of social media. And it I shouldn't let it bother me, but it does. And it bothers me because of the way it hurts the industry, the way it hurts those of us who are actually trying to drive change in the culture of the industry. But yet there's a whole bunch of colleagues out there who preach one thing and then act another way. And the thing about it that drives me absolutely crazy is you'll see them post after post after post saying how much busier they've become, how they're overrun with these patients and how it's changed the way they've had to do care and they're still showing up to work every day despite the risk and blah, 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 blah. But yet they still have time to make a stupid TikTok video of them screwing around on the job. 
If you're so busy fighting the COVID front, like you're a character in The Legend of Zelda trying to save the world from disease, how do you have time to make such stupid videos? Newsflash, you're not a hero, you're a tool. You know who you don't see making stupid videos and complaining every day on social media about what they've had to deal with during this whole crisis? The other essential employees, the ones that actually did not sign up for this nonsense, like your grocery store workers, your food delivery people, your mail people, the police department even, they didn't sign up for this stuff. They have nothing to do with healthcare, yet they're exposed just as much as we are. You don't see them complaining about it. And they're not complaining about it because they understand that they're just as essential as you and I are. They understand that, you know what? Everybody is essential. I don't care what your job is. Now, there are definitely varying degrees of jobs, some more essential than others to certain areas of the economy and so forth. However, if your job is the very means by which you provide food on your table for your family, for your kids, the way you provide for your bills, your way of living, guess what? Your job is essential to you. So to sit here and have some self-entitled mentality that, oh, I'm an essential worker. I still have to show up and the world should bow down to me because I am considered essential is absolute nonsense. Get off your high horse, shut up, and do your job because there's a large part of the country right now that wishes they still had a job to go to while you're sitting there complaining about having to do yours, while you document the fact that you think you're a hero because you have to do your job. Not to mention that while, yes, there are some areas of the country that are a hotbed for this virus that are completely overrun and inundated with patients. I mean, I've been to New York City recently to assist with uh, relief efforts and the relocation of the sickest of the sick corona patients, ventilated, the whole nine yards, needing to be relocated because the hospitals have so many patients that they're legitimately overtaxing the oxygen system and the, the, the hospital system can't keep up with the demand. So they're being relocated. You know, I've seen the bodies stacked on a forklift, you know, being moved to the freezer truck. I've seen the hallways lined with ventilator patients, ordinary hospital rooms stacked five and six patients deep. A whole hospital room itself just stacked to the rim, overflowing into the hallway with bags and bags and bags of patient belongings belonging to those of the deceased. I get it. In some aspects of the country, it is absolutely horrible. Especially when you take into consideration the number of healthcare providers who have legitimately been battling this virus on the front lines every single day in these hotbed areas. That number of healthcare providers who have actually died while doing their jobs after having been exposed due to their agencies, their organizations, and administrations failing to prepare adequately and provide them adequate levels of PPE. But as awful as that is, and I am by no means downplaying the sacrifice that each and every single one of them gave, because quite frankly, it should be one that every single one of us is willing to give in the grand scheme of things. The large majority of the country, as far as healthcare systems go, as far as EMS systems go, are seeing a much lower patient admission rate, much lower EMS call rate than ever before. So the reality of the situation is while you're sitting here making TikTok videos about how much of a hero you are because you're so busy saving the world in the grand scheme of things, the reality of the situation is 
your call volume is actually lower than it's ever been, which is why you have time to make the stupid videos. And while you're busy saving the world one TikTok at a time, the rest of the country's essential workers are busy working double and triple what they usually do. So don't sit here and demand public thanks for your service because you want the rest of the country to feel bad for you because this virus has impacted you in such a negative mental way that you need to be thanked and validated from those you deem as less essential than you. Meanwhile, the rest of the country is literally being impacted and probably taxed the most mental way they ever have because unlike you, who, yes, yeah, still have your job to go to, a large portion of the country has no idea where their next paycheck is going to come from. A large portion of the country is suffering far more with their mental health than ever before because of the fact of this whole situation of, you know, the virus and and being deemed non-essential and not having jobs to go to, unknowing whether they're going to have jobs to go back to, having their constitutional rights infringed upon by the government, which is a whole nother issue. But, but to sit there and demand gratitude by those you deem as less essential than you because you're a little stressed out about having to do your job is absolutely ridiculous. And I kind of just mentioned it a second ago, but that kind of brought me into the other thing that's absolutely ridiculous, and that is how quickly the government took away your constitutional rights and just shut everything down over this virus ordeal. Now, I get it. There were some ridiculous projections that who knows where they were getting their numbers from. Uh, from their original projections, three-quarters of the world should be dead by now. But uh, in my opinion, they took some rather drastic measures to try to protect or, quote-unquote, protect the citizens of the country from a virus that realistically has a 0.003% chance of killing you. Probable cases, not ones that have actually even legitimately tested positive, probable cases. So, of course, the death toll is going to seem a little bit higher than it actually is because they're including probable cases. The other thing that they're including is, quote unquote, comorbidities. So I know for a fact there have been a handful of patients in the state that I work in who have uh, died of drug overdoses. However, the coroner then swabs them at the ME's office and they come back as positive. Who knows if they were, you know, symptomatic beforehand, the overdoses will kill them, but they're being labeled as a COVID death because of the fact that they merely tested positive with or without symptoms, the overdoses will kill them, but they're being counted as a positive death number by the state because of the fact they merely tested positive. So the numbers themselves are been profoundly skewed to increase the level of fear amongst the country rather successfully, if you ask me, and the rate at which the American citizen has just bent over, or I should say, lay down and just take whatever the government hands them as far as restrictions is absolutely ridiculous. Because if they're willing to infringe upon certain liberties off of a 0.003 percentage or likelihood that something could happen, What's to stop them from doing it for something that has a much larger percentage? Furthermore, 
as the antibody testing thing becomes more and more popular and more antibody tests are available, we're going to find that a far larger number of people in the United States have actually been exposed and been infected than we had previously thought. So that being said, with the death numbers as high as they were, or as high as they were presented to be, as you get more people who are positively infected who are not dying, that overall death toll number is going to significantly drop. And so for what's already an extremely low percentage of death is going to get even lower. And I get it. I understand the fact that, you know, somebody could be infected and not know. I could be infected and not know. And you go out in public and you could potentially, potentially infect somebody else and spread the virus. However, every single time you go out in public, you take a calculated risk of what could potentially happen. You could potentially get hit by a bus on the way there. You could potentially get hit by a drunk driver on the road. You could potentially have an MI behind the wheel. I could also potentially be fine without intrusion of the government telling me what I can and cannot do, where I can and cannot go. When the state said it's okay to go to the liquor store or to the pot store or to the supermarket or to the hardware store, but yet is demanding mail-in voting, it's not about a virus. When people can't go to church because there's too many people in the building, yet the abortion clinics are still full, it's not about a virus. If you want to sit here and believe that the shutdown of the entire country was in an effort to save lives and live under a rock, then go ahead. You're entitled to your belief. But the truth is you don't want to have that belief challenged. I mean, is it true that the COVID is killing people? Absolutely. Does the regular flu kill people? Absolutely. Does drunk driving kill people? Absolutely. Do we shut down the entire economy, shut down the entire country, put the citizens of the country in a state of ridiculous mental health where the rate of suicide is going to actually skyrocket because of these other conditions that can cause just as much, if not more, death? The answer is no, because it's not about a virus. I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this stance and this point of view, even, you know, for <laughs> I've received some some feedback from colleagues in my comparison between the coronavirus and the flu. And the argument is, oh, well, the flu has a vaccine. And oh, OK, yeah. And people still die from the flu. So regardless of whether or not there's going to be a vaccine for the covid, people are still going to die from it. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of disease, nature of illness. Newsflash for you, every single one of us are going to die, regardless of whether there's a vaccine. I wish there was a vaccine for stupidity, because maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we're in nationwide right now. You know, you think with all the times people have spent at home over the last, you know, six to seven weeks with this uh, lockdown, with this isolation, that people would have taken the time to educate themselves about the situation from other sources besides, you know, the mainstream media. That's the other thing that drives me crazy. It drives me absolutely up a wall. People are calling this a quarantine. Everybody's on quarantine. No, it's not. It's There's isolation precautions, procedures around the country. Quarantine is when you separate the sick from the well, not the well from the well and the well from the sick and everybody. What's going on right now is an ice, a, a nationwide isolation, not 
a quarantine. As a matter of fact, there is no quarantine because, uh, for instance, the state of New York uh, mandated that a certain group of nursing homes who previously had no positive COVID cases be mandated to accept patients that were being discharged who had tested positive. And with these patients that were being entered into these nursing homes, the state also took it upon themselves to just pass out body bags for them because they knew by integrating this positive patient into the nursing home that it was going to rapidly spread through this at-risk population and it was going to cause death. So don't sit here and tell me that it's a quarantine because we're doing everything but quarantine. Again, because it's not about a virus. You want to sit here and tell me that these measures are for the greater good and supposed to save lives, but yet we're integrating these positive testing patients into environments that have no positive cases, knowing that it's going to be detrimental to the health of everyone in that facility. And I'm getting far too fired up. So I think with that, I'm going to leave you and say that if you would like to discuss this more with some intelligent, educated debate, feel free to reach out to me at blackcloudpodcast.gmail.com and we will schedule a time where you and I can have a conversation and we'll record it and actually publish it on an episode. Um, other than that, I hope to see you next time, guys. Watch out for yourselves. Watch out for each other. Keep your boots polished. Your head held high. Oh, and stay off of TikTok. The views and opinions expressed in this production are in no way a substitution for your agency's policies, procedures or guidelines. The content and ideas are that of Black Cloud Society, and in no way reflect the views and opinions of the employers of those involved with this production. We thank you for tuning in.